G'day and welcome to episode 140. I have the absolute pleasure today of bringing in the lovely Natalie Khan to talk about her interest in pain and occupational therapy, how that actually works, exploring her how that interest came about, her experience with it, uh, and uh, making some correlations with the ideal sort of occupation-based practice model and what's currently happening in pain because... From my perspective, it's extremely, extremely fascinating, and I think we can all learn quite a bit from how it's happening, so enjoy. G'day, my name's Brock Cook, and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Well, it's true, to be fair. I don't know that I've met a lot of people who have just become OTs because Mm. they wanted to be an OT. Funny enough, my mum's actually an OT. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, You You might be the first then. You know, but it, I, it's not, it still wasn't like that. Um, I think you probably actually um, have met her because my mom studied overseas and so her degree wasn't recognised. Okay. Um, and so she's only recently gone through JCU to get that. Um, she was one of your students um, who to get that, I guess, recognised. Yep. Um, but growing up, I love what like her. I was interested in what my mom did, but I was also kind of like, just don't want to do what my mom does. Um, and so, I don't know, it's probably a combination of there was a moment of, I think I'll finish school and didn't want to do any further studies. I just wanted a gap year. And my parents forced me to go to uni. So As out of do. rebellion, yep, out of rebellion, I studied science to prove a point that uni is not for me because I'm really bad at science. <laughs> That seems like a logical way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Look. Look. It was uh, obviously not not that, <laughs> but it made sense at the time. I was like, "Yep, here I'm." You know, doing science. Um, I failed. You know, as as expected, because I'm not. Um, well, at the time, I think um, I've probably become better at those at sciences, but at the time, it wasn't really important to me. Um, I was just kind of there for the uni experience. Um, I can relate. Then I had some subjects. I think it was some of the healthcare subjects I had with OTs and um, kind of, you know, I liked it and I thought, oh, actually, I like what these guys do, but I'm not, I don't want to be like my mum. But I could be an OT, but I don't want to be like my mum. <laughs> and then... That internal struggle. Yeah, got into <laughs> OT and was like, you know what? I love what my mum does. So... Here I am, an OT now. Yeah. Just like your mum. Just like my mum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so definitely one... didn't, wasn't what I expected it to be, but that's all right. I haven't regretted it. So well, that's, that's all anyone could ask, hopefully. <laughs> so once you finished uh, becoming your mother, where did you move into? Like, what was your practice area? What was your passion? Yeah. Um, I guess through uni, you know, going through JCU, um, one of the big things that we learn about is rural health and rural practice. And that was something that really aligned 
um, with my values and what I wanted to do. I, I, you know, had the plans prior to COVID. I don't know if you remember because we talked about this a long time ago when you just started Occupied, probably not. Um, but I had plans of going overseas and doing like some refugee type work. I do, um, I do recall that actually. So um, obviously yeah, it was all planned out pre-COVID, you know, so I was... Obviously um, COVID changed a lot of plans. Yeah, but anyway, so I ended up, um, I prior to that, so I got into rural work basically is what I was trying to get to. Um, really enjoyed rural work and I thought that was a good transition to, you know, doing something like refugee type of work. And I seemed logical at the time. I really enjoyed um, rural work and I think, you know, the things that we learned at uni, I probably have a bit of a complex of feeling like everything is my responsibility and I'm there to fix the world <laughs> and so you know I remember our lecturers would say things like oh you know not enough health professionals go out there and they need health professionals and I was like wow they need me <laughs> and you're like wait I'm a health professional yeah. I can do this exactly yeah. I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna be a health professional and I can go so um I went out there and I stayed out there for two years um, I did my um, allied health rural generalist training actually through JCU while I was out there um, and I loved it I had the best time really I don't think I would have left if it wasn't for the fact that I realized how isolated we were when COVID started um, so just just for those that probably aren't so familiar with the rural work what's the, what would be the main differences between say what you were doing in a rural setting and you know what someone might do in a more metro setting yeah, so really every day was very different. Um, I guess so there's a combination of inpatient and outpatient work. Um, we would, you know, do anything from, you know, your general um, um, older person presentations in hospital. You've got your, you know, your orthosurgical rehab presentations. Um, we did um, hand therapy outpatient, pediatrics outpatient, your general community outpatient. Um, had a, a palliative caseload, which was quite, quite a big part of my caseload, actually. I didn't expect it to, but it turned out being that way. Um, so it was really just very different every day. Um, you know, you, you do outreach to different towns and, you know, overnight trips and going out into communities. Saw some interesting things. <laughs> no um, but it was, yeah, it was good. I think I, I, I like that no day was like... The previous day um but I think you know towards the end of the two years I kind of felt that I was just plateauing a little bit in my learning because you, you see so much you know mm. you see so many different things that are um you know really different to the things that you usually see and so you never really um I guess you become really good at kind of knowing how to solve the problem but you're never really good at actually knowing yeah. what how to do something. You become that yeah. jack of all trades, but you don't really have the, yeah. I guess, the time and the exposure to become the master of any yeah. particular area. No, no. So, you know, like some conditions, you know, like I guess, you know, you could have maybe two two amputations or three amputations in a year, and that's, that's a busy year of amputations, you yeah. know, and so... And then you've got, you know, your hand conditions that you might see, you know, again, you probably see 
the same condition two, two or three times a year. So it's just really tricky trying to, um, I guess, be really good at anything. <laughs> um, and so I decided that that was probably, um, it was time to move on. Time for a change. I think yeah. for, for many people, they probably wouldn't have heard that term rural generalist. I feel like it's a very Australian yeah. thing and it is what it says on the box essentially. It's when you're working in a rural area and you become generally good at a whole range of different things so that you can meet the needs of a wider population without having essentially multiple, like in a metro area, you'd have a therapist for hands and you'd have a therapist in pal care and you'd have a different therapist, like you'd have a whole handful of therapists for the different areas, whereas in a rural area, um, and I can't remember what the population definition of for rural, I think it's like under 20,000 in a town or something like that. Oh, yeah, I think it's something like that. We um, were definitely well below, I think we had 8,000 people where yeah. I was in the, some of the areas I was serving, I think had 1,000 or 800 people. So, um, yeah, so generally you'd, service whatever needs came up in the population as opposed to being a special like a specialist kind of uh, or having a specialist knowledge base in one particular area yep yeah and what's sort of the other sort of relatively unique thing with rural general stuff is just the area that you cover as well like do you have any idea like how many like what sort of how many kilometers how like how big an area you were spread um... across <laughs> I don't probably don't know the exact area, um, but oh, I mean, I could probably you could probably drive about two hours into most directions, I guess, and that was the area. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, yeah. That, that was kind of the area that we covered, um, and then that it was you know someone else's district would start. Yeah. Um, and that's the area. And, you know, I think you, you become really good at, um, you know, as a rural generalist, you become really good at just collaborating with those specialist clinicians. So, you know, you've got those major people at the metropolitan areas and you call them and you say, hey, I've got another pediatric patient here. This is what's going on. And I think to them a lot of times it's pretty straightforward stuff and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we see 100 of these a day. But <laughs> it was a bit, um, yeah different um for for us yeah, um, yeah in, was... in those areas too you also end up with like rural generals in other professions as well i assume yeah yeah so everyone well all of the allied health actually even medical nursing everyone's everyone's a rural generalist um so it's kind of the um it's a big guess, mdt yeah, family the... It is, it is, but it was really nice. It was, it was great. I, I had the best time. You know, you get to know everyone really well. You get to work with all the team members really closely and everyone knows exactly what everyone's roles are. And so it's, it makes it, um, yeah, makes a really nice place to work. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you originally were planning to go and do refugee work. Where did that interest come from? Oh, I think, again, it's probably like goes back to me thinking that I can save the world <laughs> on my own. Um, I, th oh, I um, when I, I've honestly wanted to do that, I think since I was about seven years okay. old. Um, at the time I thought I was going to be a doctor and, you know, that makes sense. That's how you, you know, save people. Um, I don't know. I think it's probably a combination of, I think, my heritage and my background and that, um my um growing up in in brazil um for for times you know 
mom used to take us you know just little things she used to take us to the favelas and we had to give all of our all of our toys away that we didn't you know so that we didn't use so just I guess even though it's probably in the grand scheme of things a little thing but I think it just started to instill some of those um, things and that you know there's other people out there who are less fortunate than us um, who need support and you know my dad he's um, of Iraqi Kurdish descent so he um, he was a refugee himself okay um, so I think you know probably all of those things just kind of came together and the need to help people out there and you know I guess helping your people you know the, yep. the people that are I guess of your same background and you know that doesn't have to be but I think it's just um I've, it's that's the sort of thing you end up being sort of drawn to I guess. Yeah, I think it's just it's created a bit of a passion for me in working with minority groups, probably. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is one of the reasons why I also like rural health and you know, like Indigenous Aboriginal health. Um, it just kind of all fits under that same bubble of of people who are disadvantaged um, for most of the time reasons that are out of their control. And again, me thinking that I can save the world. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like that's a that's a fairly common, not necessarily save the world, but like wanting to help people is yeah. is a pretty yeah. common value held by people. Like I think that's just one of those things that you'd be hard pressed to find someone that isn't attracted to the profession that doesn't have that value in some yeah. way or form. Like it's just one of those things that's very much associated with not even just OT, but like a lot of health related professions. It, it attracts people that want to help other people. Yeah, yeah. I think probably uh, sometimes, I think I've gotten better at it. It's, there's been times where I think it was unhealthy, the levels of... Okay. <laughs> well, the first, um, first uh, part is admitting you've got a problem, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think it's, it's a lot healthier now and <laughs> I realise I can't um, save everyone. Um, but, you know, it's led me to where I am now. I think I just... Um, I've um, probably been a higher achiever for a while, not necessarily always academically, but, you know, just from a, um, I don't know, yeah, providing value to people's lives. Is, um, I've, I've, I still stand by the fact that I, I still think some of the best OTs aren't necessarily the ones that are best in the books. Yeah, I, I would agree. I Well, I'm not saying that like I was a good OT or am a good OT, but I definitely was not good at the books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was much more a practical person, still am, but yeah. Uh, yeah, didn't really even find my feet until I'd started placement and was actually doing things because that's where I learnt the most and that's where I sort of went, oh, wait, everything just clicked. I'm like, I understand how some of this stuff works now yeah. and I can actually put it into practice. I think I was pretty similar. I feel like after placement, my marks just like... yeah. I rocketed and I was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, it's all falling into place and it makes sense now. <laughs> I did have a, I did, I don't know if I've ever told this story on here, but I did have a, uh, I ran into one of my old lecturers. She's not there anymore, so no one can look her up. I did have one of my old lecturers that I ran into at a conference once. Um, it was the very end of the conference. Everyone was having a few, like, adult beverages and uh, I remember talking to her and I asked her, I'm like, you know, what was your perception of me as a student? Because I didn't, I knew I wasn't a very good student. Yep. And she was just blunt. She was like, up until you went to placement, 
we didn't even really know why you were there. And then you came back like this completely different person and everyone was like, oh my God, what happened to him? And I yeah. just absolutely cracked up and I'm like, well, that, at least I was on the right track and I was aware enough to realise that was what was going on as well. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny, I think even when I was a student, I remember seeing a lot of people coming back from placement and just kind of going, oh, wow, you're yeah, really a different person to what I remember. It's amazing how much people grow. Like, In our course, it's pretty much 12 months worth of placement and yeah. like the difference that people can change or the, the amount that people can change in that 12-month period is massive. Yeah. I know, obviously, for other courses, it's it's laid out differently, but, I mean, everyone does the essential, essentially the same amount of placement, and I'm assuming everyone goes through some sort of similar transformation as we slowly indoctrinate you into the profession. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I remember it was, um, yeah, interesting to see the, the differences that we saw. Um, so then you've started another Instagram account, uh, which is where I found, I was like, wait a minute, is this the same person? Uh, the Ockgram. Yes. Talk me through it. Because aesthetically, as I was saying before we started, <laughs> it's amazing yeah. and it's super creative and I love it. But talk uh, me through it. Look, I th- I th- again, I think there's there's room for improvement. I'm trying, still trying to figure out the aesthetics. Uh, but basically, um, so I, I, um, I did a rotation in persistent pain, which was a bit of a journey of how I got there. Um, but, um, I think in my time there, I really realized how much misinformation is out there, um, about health in general, really to, to, you know, just, just put it simply, but, um, persistent pain, I noticed that, you know, really a big biggest part of my job was actually just trying to bring down those barriers of this is what you think pain is this is what it actually is you know kind of meeting them halfway Mm. um and so I just thought um you know well you know it's probably it's a combination of things and that I thought you know I want to share those things with clinicians I want to share those things with anyone really who's interested Mm. uh, in those topics and then it's kind of just evolved into um me sharing really short snippets of like evidence-based articles and the findings of those i feel like the other thing with health professionals you know i think reasonably so you know we spend all day at work the last thing we want to do is come home and read a journal article it's boring it's usually not a really nice read um (laughs) so i've been trying to you know really summarize things as best as I can um, and then link the article at the bottom to anyone who's interested in looking into things. And um, sometimes I've commented on, you know, the, the quality of the article, again, anyone who's interested, but just trying to stay transparent and sharing those things so that hopefully somewhere in the world, someone's scrolling down their feed and going, oh, you know, that was 20 seconds of learning that I've just done. And that wasn't a lot of effort and, you know, it might make a difference to my practice. And 20 then, seconds more than they had before. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully open some thoughts about things. And um, So how do you, not, how do yeah. you make the jump from rural generalists wanting to work with minorities and then pain? 
Yeah. That seems like a big stretch. To be honest, I actually, it was a very logical next step for me. It, it made a lot of sense. I think, you know, in a way, I guess you could argue that people in pain, well, even though I think the stats is about one in four people in Australia have persistent pain. So it's not exactly a minority group, um, but it's a misunderstood group. It's a very misunderstood group of people. I think, um, you know, really it probably started, um, and I don't, don't know if you know this or if other people listening know about this, but when I, um, um, in, in the rural world, um, you know, you've got your normal patients, your, you know, your um, pretty straightforward patients, um, and then you've got this other group of patients that's kind of considered, the, um, the, they, they call them the forgotten. Okay. So um, they're kind of those people that have really complex health needs, um, potentially would be doing a lot better if they were closer to a big city. Um, but they're just kind of forgot. They just seem like they've just been forgotten by the health system. And, you know, um, there's just, there's so much going on. And um, a lot of times there's huge barriers and getting people access, you know, be, you know, maybe they're too unwell to drive to a, to two hours to go to the next town. And um, where's actually where I would have been about an eight hour return trip to some of the places where I was working. Yep. Um, so it's just too far to go, you know, to, to get to, to the see. more complex health services. Yeah. Yep. yeah. To, you know, go and see the specialists um, that, that you need to see um, to get the care that you need and the care that you, I guess, deserve. Um, and so again, it keeps coming back to the same thing. To the complex of me thinking that I'm an OT <laughs> and I'm going to save the world. <laughs> um, there was um, a few patients in particular that I had where um, they had complex, uh, very complex health conditions. And um, um, part of that was persistent pain, um, which at the time I probably didn't really look at as a condition in itself i just looked at it as a thought it was like a symptom of something else yeah yeah Yeah. it's a symptom of something else and really it's not related to me that's the doctor's responsibility but you know they're struggling with their occupational performance so that's that's my focus um so i didn't really consider pain all that much um but you know um we we had a few doctors who um you know a few patients in particular they would present to hospital and you know, again, the doctors didn't really know um, those conditions. And so they would say things like, oh, you know, they're just here, but they're actually fine. They don't, they're not really, they don't really have this, this mm. condition and they don't really have pain because I saw them do this. You know, I turned around and then they said they have pain, but then they scratched their head with their arm and they were able to do it fine, you know, that type of stuff. So it's obviously they're making it up or it's in their head. Um and, you know, initially, again, I was, you know, a new grand. I didn't really know that much about those things. The doctors, they were people that I generally respected. And mm. so I was like, okay, well, they're making up. Yeah. They're right. I saw them. I saw the patient. They, they were doing those things and they didn't look like they're in pain. Whereas when the doctor comes in, they're in a lot of pain. Um, and so it led down to a bit of a, you know, okay, yeah, probably complacency of those things but you know i think the really nice thing about being an ot is that you spend a lot of time with people 
um, compared to maybe some of those medical professions. Yeah, and, yeah, definitely. You know, again, being a rural generalist, I saw this patient, this one patient in particular as an inpatient, then he'd be an outpatient, then he would come in as an inpatient again, and then see him as an outpatient. Um, so I got to know him very well. And, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, after a while I was like, I don't, I really don't think he, he's making this up. Why would anyone make anything like this up? You know, it just kind of I'd started really questioning um, what those doctors and health professionals had, had told me. Yeah. Like, why would anyone be making these things up? You know, like, you, you know, so this person particularly was quite young. I'm like, you know, why? You know, like, it just, there, there was, it didn't make any sense to me of why a young person would just choose to kind of um, give their life up um, and just pretend to be in pain. Um, so it led down a big, bit of a very extensive rabbit hole of research and professional development and um, looking at things differently and joining interest groups and all of a sudden I was the person that was kind of coordinating the multidisciplinary team, which is very questionable given that I was a new grad, but anyway, that's... Um, if you got the expertise, you got the expertise. Uh, well, in a very sad way at, at that moment, I had a lot more expertise in that than other people because they hadn't looked into it, um, which, you know, arguably I still didn't know anything at all, but... Um, yeah, so um, it just really led to an interest in pain and learning about those things. That's, you know, when I came across pain and um, I just, it really, it just made sense to me, I think. Um, there was a lot of areas of OT that I obviously enjoyed being a rural generalist. I was quite happy to do all different areas and work in all the scopes of OT. Yep. But nothing just made as much sense as pain did. I don't know that. Yeah, yeah, no, completely. And it's, uh, you said that you then did a, like after you left the rural practice, you did a rotation through a pain clinic or pain team? Yeah, yeah. Was that, did you find, like, was that an opportunity to, I guess, learn even more or it was more just to see how a dedicated pain team, like what did you sort of learn going through that experience? Um, I think probably all of those things, you know, it was, I thought it was the best thing ever. I think um, my um, my supervisor actually we were talking about it just before I left. He said I really creeped him out because I was I would you know when I was um, doing my training. That's <laughs> such a weird thing for a supervisor to say. I know, like but, you know, we we um, we have a, a good working relationship, so it's fine. But he said that you know I used to, because I used to sit in the in the room when I was doing my training and I would just write quotes of what the other clinician said because <laughs> I just you know and I, I explained to him I guess you know English is my second language and so wording things sometimes is a bit hard yep. um, and you know trying to find the best ways of saying things and so just everything these people were saying I was like wow that's amazing and so I just write this quote so I had this like running um you know <laughs> chapter Sorry, in my notebook that just had all of these quotes. quotes. people in the room. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is amazing. And then I'd go back over them and try and think about how I can, you know, use those sentences and put those things together. I mean, you know, that's how I learned. 
um, might have seemed a bit. <laughs> it might have seemed a bit odd to them, but it obviously worked. Yeah, he said he he did say he he understands now why I did it, but I think at the time he was probably just a bit worried that I was just going to randomly whip up quotes. Yeah, just randomly <laughs> start recycling what someone said the day before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously I, I, I didn't do that. I think it was just, you know, I, I didn't have that context when I was learning about pain. I was just yeah. kind of learning whatever I saw on the internet and like, you know. Well, I think it's it's still a, rel- for OT, it's still a relatively new sort of area. Like I know there probably wouldn't have been much at all in the course when you went through on, on pain specifically. And even now yeah. I'm not sure if there's too much more than that but yeah i think there's um there's one subject i think it's a h double o like two double o two or something yeah, like that might that. cover some of it um i think it's got a lecture on pain yeah um which it's hard i think it's really hard because i don't think one lecture can really do it any justice um you know i i had a i actually had a student um that came through um, and spent a week with us and they had just gone through that lecture and they didn't realize that it was the same thing <laughs> that what we were doing. And it's not, you know, criticizing the lecture or anything like that at all. Um, you know, I looked at it and it was exactly what we were doing, but I think it's just, it's really hard to bring, to really give the topic justice. I think, yeah. In- Especially seeing it's, like I said, it's relatively new. Like I know the, the pain team in Townsville, like it started, um, because a guy I graduated with was with the OT on the team when it started. Uh, so that was, I want to say, 11, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Like, that's when it began. Um, and, like, even talking to him now, he doesn't work in that team now, obviously, but even talking to him because he still has contact with a lot of people that still work in that area. Um, he's in a completely different state now, but still sort of stays in touch with, I guess, pain practice. Um, he's like the stuff that we were looking at back then, like it's completely different now. Like it's just such a, a an emerging area still, like being yeah. so so young for our profession. Obviously, pain treatment has been around since, you know, medicine. But on terms of OT's involvement and what OT does in that field, it's it's just a baby. I think it's really, I think that's really quite sad, to be honest, that that's, that's the case. Like, I, I understand. I think just in general, pain is a really, you like, you know, I would argue that a lot of health professionals, no matter what degree mm. they're going through, don't necessarily, uh, you know, they're not up to date with the newest pain, contemporary pain neuroscience mm. knowledge. Um, but I think it's really sad that OT is not often seen as a role that, um should work in that area because you know to be honest I think it 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 just makes so much sense to me that OT should be working in pain you know the really the basic model of care that they look at in pain is basically I don't don't want to say OT is new at first but it's basically a recycled PO you know we're looking at people's environments we're looking at all these different aspects and how it impacts um their pain experience and their life and their ability to do things. But I feel like that might be more to do with how 
pain and how they people how they look at pain has changed. Like I feel like, like you said before, I feel like for you know most of human history, it was looked at as just a symptom of you know an injury or something else. And if there was no injury that sort of could be connected with it, then like you said, people just thought you were making it up or. Um, I know in fields that I've worked in, I've worked in pain, but people who have complained of pain without any obvious visible uh, trigger for it, it's often seen as, oh, they're, they're drug-seeking or they're, they're just trying yeah. to get medication out of, out of doctor, pharmacist, case manager, whoever it is that they're talking to. So there's always been this sort of belief that pain is not necessarily, like it's a, it's a, bio, a biological, biomechanical uh, I guess, symptom as opposed to a neurological condition in some cases. Yeah, yeah. It's, again, it's a misunderstood condition, I think. You know, there's that, you know, if it's not biological, it's psychological mm. and therefore it means they're making it up. You know, there's just no in-between in a lot of um, people's perceptions with pain. Which You know, and you mentioned the, the you know, people going and, um, being treated as drug seekers and um, it's really again it's really interesting I'm sure you know there's, there's always going to be people out there that that are potentially you know hmm. drugs but um, most of the people that I saw in the clinic they're really frustrated and you know almost I would say humiliated about the fact that they're being treated as drug seekers hmm. and you know really looking at it as I don't have another option I don't think you know like hmm. the, the Medical team's not really realizing. I don't know how else to manage this. This is where I'm at. Yeah, yeah. And I'm desperate because I've got pain, but yet you treat me like I'm drug seeking. Yeah. But actually, I'm just trying to live a functional life and, you know, not be in so much pain that I, you know, so I can you know go to work and do the things that I need to do. So within those, like you mentioned, it being sort of a recycled PEO, how they're looking at it. Can you explain? I guess in layman's terms how that view like obviously we talked about how pain used to be like looked at as like a symptom how is it looked at amongst those sort of people that work in that area um because that might give us some insight into i guess how it's treated differently yeah so um they call it a biopsychosocial model so i think they it's used a lot in mental health as mm, well yeah, yep. supposed to be used in mental health um but although they're, they're looking at changing it for pain and that it's supposed, I think they're looking at calling it the psycho, psychosocio bio model and that bio is being put at the back. That's the, you know, I guess it's trying to yeah. really highlight that bio shouldn't be at the front. Yep. Um, so that really, it, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. I, I just don't know that I like how it sounds. But yeah. Oh, yeah, it doesn't roll off the tongue as easy. Not going to argue with the, the researchers <laughs> who, who do this for work, um, but it's you know basically looking at I guess um, the fact that there are a lot of contributors to pain. So looking at you know what what's biologically going on for this person, um, are they um, you know is there anything sinister? I guess is you know is there sinister pathology? Anything that we need to be aware of? Um, and then they just um, then looking at you know, what other contributors have we got to this, you know, pain experience? Um, you know, we know that people who have had um, difficult upbringings and difficult life experiences, um, they can be more likely to, um, 
develop what what they call a, um, a nervous system oversensitivity or nervous system dysfunction, mm -hmm. um, which can make someone more prone to developing persistent pain later in life. Um, you know, mental health is another one of those big things. Um, different social experiences. How do we feel about our pain? What, what does this patient think about their pain? You know, um, do they think it's this really horrible thing and it's going to kill them one day? Because if they do, that's probably, um, you know, um, not a really great headspace to be in. I guess we, we, we um, I say we, but I'm, I'm not working there anymore. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I've moved on to different rotations. But, um, you know, as the, the team really, they, they look at um, what are the helpful and unhelpful things that this person is currently doing to manage their pain. Um, and a lot of times... And, you know, I think part of that is because it's so misunderstood. Um, a lot of people have mostly unhelpful ways of how they manage their pain. Some, mm. some people will develop, you know, um, on their own, they'll you know, do some trial and error and they'll find some really helpful ways of managing their pain. But a lot of people, um, I guess, especially people that end up coming through pain clinics, um, are managing it often really unhelpfully. I don't know if that's a word, but. It is yep. now. We just made it one. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, that reminds me of, I remember watching a, I think it was a TED Talk years and years ago, probably a decade ago. And I, from memory, it was a lady named Kelly McGonigal. I think. It was either her or her sister. They both did TED Talks and they were very different TED Talks. But she did one uh, about stress uh, and the fact that there was, at the time, she was involved in research that was looking at the fact that it wasn't stress that was killing people, it was stressing about stress that was killing people, um, yep. which just sort of, I don't know why, that just triggered with what you were saying about um, mm -hmm. like being in that headspace. Yep. Um, and I, it's one of those things that even like in working in mental health, uh, it was always tricky that was always a hard part of working with someone depending on well like trying to support them to change their headspace was usually like you know step one but it's a, one of those yeah. things that's usually easier said than done because it's like yeah. if you don't see any hope or you've been trying to fix this or manage it whatever it is for however many years and you haven't made any progress it's very hard for me to then come in who you've never seen before and go, yep, nah, it's cool. I know exactly how this is going to work and we're going to try something different and it's going to be awesome. And they go, oh, I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It is hard. And I think, you know, a big part of it is, um, you know, how, do they, how does this person feel about change and are they ready to consider change? And if they're not, then... You know, there's, I spend a lot of sessions just validating people's experience um, and the fact that it must suck, mm. to, you know, to, to have those experiences that, um, that they're having. And I think sometimes it was interesting, actually, sometimes people would just come back the next time and just go, you know what, I feel so much better already because you're the first person that believed me mm. and believed that I was in pain, um, yeah, which I thought was really confronting, actually. <laughs> Um, in that, what way? In that, like, no one else does it. Yeah, yeah. In that, that made such a big difference for this person. Um, when really, you know, we just we spoke for an hour. That's all we did. They told me their story, and I just 
That's yeah, pretty common though. I've I've heard that similar kind of thing in from many different OTs in many different practice areas. And I feel like in reflecting on it a few times that it's possibly something to do with like we were speaking about earlier about, you know, a certain type of person is drawn to the profession and they want to help people, they want to individually yeah. save the world in your case. Yeah. But so when people come like we're almost cast into these roles as fixers and that's not necessarily i mean previously yes in a very medical model health profession or a very medical model health service that's kind of what you are you people come to you they don't have the answers you have the answers you give them the answers they get better um whereas i think more and more we're working or the the profession and ot in particular is pushing towards a more sociological basing of what we do mm. and that doesn't fit that's that's the bit that i've always well i've never been able to con, uh, consolidate with ot being a medical profession quote unquote is because we're moving away from that sort of direct uh prescriptive type medical model and i feel like areas like pain uh like as in a practice area of pain are really highlighting that benefit of our profession and what we can do and the fact that the the pain clinicians that i've spoken to their models their practices their even the way they view health is so aligned with mental health yet they practice so differently. I'm like, that's yeah. what everyone needs to be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in, yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. It's, it's definitely, um, it's exactly that. I think we, I don't know, I think OTs, you know, um, I think I posted about this recently as well. It, you know, there was a, a survey done in the US um, and they looked at, how many OTs worked within a biomedical model. And it was like a ridiculously high number. I don't know, I want to say 70 or 80% of people um, that they serve, they, they basically they looked at who uses a bottom-up and who uses a top-down approach. Yep. Um, and most OTs actually use, you know, was it bottom-up approaches? So, yep. you know, very medical approaches. I think part of that is just that, you know, it's sad because I think we have so much to contribute by looking at things differently than other other professions. But at the same time, because we look at things differently, and I think we're always taken as seriously. Um, and so we almost have to compete and kind of knowing, mm. oh, but I know things too, you know, and I, I know, I know all this lingo and I know this stuff and um, I'm an expert in something. And so I think, you know, that really leads to OTs and um, moving away from really what should be at the core. Yeah, I feel like those those systemic pressures, uh, even speaking with people from other countries in completely different health systems, Mm. they're all there. They're they're all feeling that same pressure, especially as new grads. Um, I I feel for new grads, it's, it's hard, especially when you, you know, you don't have experience or you don't even have uh like a strong experience in being able to 
I guess, hold your own when it comes to trying to maintain sort of your occupational role. Yeah. I, I mean, I was, I was exactly the same when I was a new grad. I just sort of conformed with what was going on because I'm like, what do you want to do when you're a new grad? You want to impress whoever you're working with because you're yeah. like, I want to do a good job and I want people to say, hey, that guy's a really good OT or that girl's a really good OT. That's what you want. You don't want to like start rocking the boat and pushing boundaries, whereas nowadays that's exactly what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I agree. It is it's exactly that. And I think sometimes, you know, the um the problem is then I think though is that sometimes OTs can be looked at a little bit negatively by teams because they're like, oh, I asked them for a mocker and they said no. And oh, those OTs are so unhelpful. But I think it's because OTs are starting to push back. I just don't know that we really know how how to push back yet in a way that other disciplines understand. I'm pushing back because there's a better way of doing this. I've had that conversation a few times recently with uh, a couple of people that I do supervision and mentorship with um, around not just flat refusing to do like, cause that's a very common thing is someone will send a referral to an OT with what they want as in do a mocker or do a functional or do a whatever. And I'm like, how about you refer to me and I use my, tertiary degree that's equivalent to your tertiary degree and I use my clinical reasoning and I work out what that person needs you just refer to me for like why is it do you think that this person needs OT oh I've noticed they're you know not coping at home or they're not doing this or whatever it is and then I'll work out what assessments and stuff need to be done but I feel like that's a A medical model, it's a similar, like we were talking about, like that clash between how OT really wants to practice and a system that really wants to do it the other way around. So it's, I I can kind of understand why it's happened because like you were explaining before with the top down, bottom up, like we want to, we want to start at the top and sort of work our way down. They want to start at the bottom, find the problem, work our way up. And that where you meet in the middle is generally where the assessment stuff takes ha- takes hold. So I think that's why you're getting referrals or why OTs are often getting referrals for specific assessments. It's because it kind of is a bit confusing. If you're a profession that's always looked at assess, 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 find what's wrong and then, you know, eliminate the problem kind of thing, yep, yep. then having a profession that kind of does it in their eyes sort of ask about would be confusing it's like oh okay if they're not going to look at the problem then maybe that's they just start with their assessment they don't not many other professions that i've ever worked with understand that we don't stop we don't go from like problem to assessment like we've got this whole other thing of like occupation and roles and all that sort of stuff above that and i think that's where ot's need to be really confident in one owning that that's us like that's where we fall that's that that's our our bread and butter but also being confident enough to you know explain it to someone that doesn't like hey like i understand you like there's something going on with this person here's what i see i know you referred for a mock-off say for example but here's why i don't think that might suit based on what i've seen from my lens um but instead of that i'm gonna do this and go from there like it's i feel like we come out of uni sometimes and we're a little bit precious we just expect that you know i've done four years people should know what i do (laughs) 
Yeah, but at the same time, it gets old having to explain, oh, yeah. you know, what you're doing, having to warrant your presence in the room almost, you know. Like, it's very, I don't know, there's both sides to it, you know. And again, I, like, the specifics of that are going to be dependent on, like, your the team that you're actually talking to, I guess. Because yeah. you're going to get some teams that you, you know, might have to explain it a couple of times and they just get it. Yeah. And then, you know, you're off to the races, whereas you're going to get some that just, no matter how many times they hear it, they're just not going to get their head around it. And in those cases, you might have to find like a different sort of workaround. You might have to go, okay, I'll just tag this referral for a mock-up and then I'll go and do my assessment or whatever it is. Um, yeah, it's 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 definitely a tricky workaround. It's something I've I've been in and I've supported quite a few people that are going through similar type things. It's it's a very common uh, trait. Experience. Yeah, it's a very it's a shared yeah. experience that many of us have shared. Yeah. yeah. So what's the ultimate goal with pain? Are you aiming to eventually work in a pain team or cure the world of pain or <laughs> cure the world of pain? Look, um I don't I don't I don't have an exact goal at the moment. I guess you know, leaving the pain service i was really keen to um i guess keep a foot in the pain world um mm -hmm. so i've um, started um doing my postgraduate um in pain at the moment science and pain. Awesome. um so it's only just started so i don't know that i that i know too much just yet um first step but um yeah i don't i don't necessarily think that you know i, I mean there's nothing wrong with working in a pain team. I don't think, I think that's, you know, awesome. Mm. Um, but I don't necessarily think that um, you have to be based in a pain team to provide good pain um, care. You know, I think um, it's a really nice area in that, um, you know, you can really apply it to a lot of areas of OT. You know, you could, um, you know, like, I guess, currently working on, on inpatient awards, um, mm. which I'm doing at the moment, use it all the time. Um, you know, you can use it in an ED apartment, department. Again, you can use it in hands. You can use it in, um, you know, you can use it in pediatrics even. Um, like you said, one in four. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, you know, there's, um, it's, it applies to a lot of areas. Um, I think I'll probably, you know, either go, depending on what the world is doing, um, I'll, you know, might go back rural and um, look at doing some of that work over there. Um, you know, um, pain is one of those things that's really quite poorly managed, again, in those groups that are disadvantaged, um, especially um, people of colour, Aboriginal people, um, even African-Americans. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of research around how, those people are generally provided um, a lot poorer um, pain um, service. Even just, just the general stuff like um, medication from doctors, I think they're more often seen to be drug-seeking or um, non-compliant and things like that. So um, I'd love to, you know, do something in that area or maybe I'll end up going overseas and doing the refugee stuff. Maybe I'll get to, apply, you know, apply some of those things there. I don't really... Um, know exactly what that will look like, but I guess I'll see where see where life takes me. Um, I love that. So free. 
I'll live vic- um, I'm going to have to live vicariously through you. Um, well, well, yeah, I, I live vicariously through other people all the time. I feel. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I don't you know. You know, I probably you know with my background and having moved around a lot, I don't know that I could ever imagine myself just being in the one place forever. Yeah. So um, it's just wherever life takes me. You know, googled pain clinics overseas, and I found a whole bunch of countries where they've got pain clinics. I was like, oh, I guess you know, I could do that. I don't. Again, I don't really know what it will be yet. Um, I That's think awesome. We'll just see what happens. See where the wind takes you. Yeah. 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 See what happens. What opportunities come up and. Um, and they come. Start becoming the OT world expert in pain. Uh, look, I don't think so. There is, to I, be honest... I, I can see it now. I can picture it, it now. If if it happened, it would only be because there's not that many OTs in pain. <laughs> Got to start somewhere. Um, I, look, I'm definitely by no means an expert in anything related to pain. You know, I think um, it's something that I'm interested in, but I'm definitely... Um, yeah, 100% would not consider myself an expert. Even once I complete, once I complete my postgraduate studies, I think I'll still probably just be like, oh, yeah, I know some things <laughs> about pain. But. Do you find it's one of those things, oh, I think I already know the answer to this, but I feel like it's possibly similar to mental health in the way that you can you know, learn all you can, about, like all you want to out of books and that sort of stuff, but then working with the individual and their experience is like I could work with uh, you know the same people with the same diagnosis for the rest of my life and every single person would be different and present differently and experience it differently and I would have to do different things with them I suspect it's very similar to that yeah a hundred percent and I think you know really from a clinical perspective a lot of times I would spend so much time just talking to people exactly about, you know, like what those things look like for them and just really exploring things. And sometimes it's really hard, I guess, you know, when we're looking at that biopsychosocial model and you identify all these factors um, that make them more prone to having persistent pain or, um, you know, some of those unhelpful um, Mm -hmm. beliefs and behaviours and, you know, just trying to figure out which ones of these are, potentially causing more harm than the others and then you just start um exploring those and you know looking at you know obviously sometimes you look at exploring those and sometimes you just go straight into let's just you know not even focus on these let's just actually shift focus and look at what are your goals and as we work through the goals we might come back and explore some of these things um but yeah i can this so aligns with how i like to practice in mental health i love it I think, but, you know, like you, you definitely, you, there, you could not say, you know, oh, yep, you've got arthritis, let's do this. Yeah. You need to do five minutes of this every day. And then after two weeks, we do 10 minutes of this. You know, it's just, it would never work like that because, yep. um, you know, and one of those quotes that I used to write down, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just, again, I just thought it was great was that, you know, when, when people came through and they said things like I've got arthritis or, you know, I've got fibromyalgia or whatever their diagnosis might be actually spending time with them and going, um, you know, 
oh, you know, oh, that's really interesting. I've worked with a lot of people who have fibromyalgia in the past. I know that it usually can look quite different for different people and um, it can really impact people very differently in their lives. Um, I'm really interested to know how your fibromyalgia has impacted your life. Can you tell me more about that? Mm. Um, or, you know, even just acknowledging the fact that a lot of people have very different symptoms with fibromyalgia. Can you tell me about what those are like? I just don't think those were things that I would ever, especially when I was doing hands, you know, I'd go, oh, yeah, you've got arthritis. I know everything about arthritis. I'm a new grad who has been working for two years. <laughs> I know exactly what we can and can't do. And this is the process of, you know, and I think it's <laughs> working in pain has really made me realize that that is not how, how I should be practicing um, at all. But again, what, you know, what context do we kind of have to know mm. to do better? We don't know. We kind of um, don't know whether that should be something that you learn at uni, but there's so much that you're supposed to learn at uni or, do we just hope that clinicians eventually find that out? Um, and, you know, a lot of people wouldn't. So then are you just, you know, was it perpetuating that cycle of yeah. uh, unhelpful um, pain things? I think, um, you know, if, if anyone who, who I've worked with at the pain clinic would listen to this, they'll probably laugh about what I'm going to say next. But there's a, there's a, a video we would often... Um, watch with with our clients which um, was um, by um, Peter O'Sullivan he's a big um, physio in the pain world um, and um, you know they there's a lot of studies that have found that you know lower back pain is actually uh, and I can, can't get this word right I think it's iosogenic um, condition so I think that's the word I could okay. be wrong I hope I haven't got it wrong because that's that's embarrassing. Um, but basically, it's a it's a condition that's generally per, like it, it's caused by healthcare institutions and health professionals um, because of how we treat people, because of how we look at scans, because of how we describe people's backs. As you know, like not we as OTs, but you know, doctors they mm. I don't want to point fingers, but. The healthcare the, system as the a people whole. that the people that look at scans um, will you know sometimes just say really unhelpful things to people again again I can you know, put my hand up and say I've done that and I've had um, you know people come to me again within the hand setting who had arthritis in their hands and I was like oh yes I know about arthritis it's a wear and tear condition. What that means is it's degenerative and it's just going to get worse over time. <laughs> and looking back, I feel so bad that, that I ever said that. But that's kind of what I took from uni. That's, yeah. that's what I learned. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is completely not what arthritis is at all. Um, but that's what I took away from it. And so that was the information that I probably passed on, you know, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And, you know, if I don't tell people that, then it's going to, they would have heard it from their neighbor yeah, yeah. or from someone else who. Google. I had uh, Google. Yeah. I had a grandma once. She had arthritis and this is what happened to her. And yeah, it just becomes this thing of, um, yeah, it's a self, self-fulfilling prophecy, as you put it. That's, that's exactly um, what it becomes sometimes. But 
sad. Do you think that because I have this sort of inkling that pain, like obviously, it's a it seems like a very good fit for OT. Do you feel like it's an area that OTs can be really occupation based in working with that population? Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I think that's what I really enjoyed about it. It's so holistic, and you know, I think especially having done work in areas where, even though I was a rural generalist, um, there was still some restrictions, you know. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have an outpatient um, because it's a, you know, a hospital outpatient yeah. um, and you're, so your role is preventing hospital admission. So I wouldn't necessarily go and help them with, I don't know, their gardening. That's not really my job. Um, whereas I feel like the really nice thing with pain has been that, um really what it's whatever the patient's goals are um and so you know i sometimes sometimes that was actually interestingly um there was a lot of people who just wanted to walk and that was not a physio referral you know not necessarily it could Mm. be a physio referral but it was really you know because we worked in a really good interdisciplinary team sometimes i would work with people on their you know just their goal of walking Obviously, if they, you know, if there was problems with their gait or mm. other complications, then physio would get involved. Um, but it was, you know, whatever they want to do. I want to be able to cook. I want to be able to make my own breakfast. I want to be able to be intimate with, you know, my partner. Yep. Um, so very different, you know, people wanting to be able to engage in their schoolwork and, you know, I guess from a, from a younger patients. But, yeah, very whatever their goals are. I want to be able to do work and get home and, you know, have enjoy my afternoon rather than being in so much pain that um, my days kind of come to an end. I want, you know, I want work-life balance. I guess it's one of those, it's one of those sort of areas where it literally impedes or works its way into affecting absolutely every little tiny part of your life it's not like you know if you break a leg or something like yeah okay that's going to affect some things and it's not going to affect other things whereas pain it and it doesn't seem i mean i don't know a huge amount about it but it doesn't even seem to discriminate with regards to where the pain is felt it still seems to have an impact on like everything everything people do it's interesting actually because i don't don't often share this. Um, I've kind of hinted at it on my Instagram, but I haven't really shared too much about it. But um, when I actually, when I was at uni, I started developing persistent pain. Um, and again, looking back, I don't really have to try to figure out what started it, but it was, it was, you know, last year of uni, there was a lot, a lot going on mm. at uni and a lot going on for me outside of uni. And I think potentially I had an overuse injury initially and um, it kind of went away and then it came back and went away. And so I didn't really, couldn't really, you know, I was like, oh, yep, I've got an overuse injury. And um, me being really smart, I'd done a placement where I did some hand stuff. It was my hands. And I was like, oh, yes, this symptom means this and this symptom means this. I think, you know, this is what I have. Diagnosed myself, I had carpal tunnel. 
Um, and then my other hand started hurting, and I, you know, it was like, oh, it's like trying to focus on what are these symptoms. And then, you know, after a while, I was like, I think I've got carpal tunnel on my other hand too. So I'm obviously, you know, getting quite frustrated at this. Um, and then I diagnosed myself with something else. I was getting cubital tunnel symptoms when I, you know, rested my elbows on tables and things like that. Um, and I'll talk to clinicians, you know, like I, I didn't just self-diagnose. I should probably add that to that because that's yeah. um, probably not very, unlike a very health, good health professional. <laughs> you know, I spoke to other health professionals. I spoke to hand therapists. I was like, these are the symptoms I'm having. I think this is what I have. What do you think? And they'll, you know, have a look at my hands and they'll go, yeah, that's definitely what you've got. Um, and then it fluctuated, went kind of went away for a bit. Um, and when I was working rurally, it came back um, and um, I was, it just got so bad, you know, I was guessing, trying to get to, you know, your point in terms of it impacted everything mm. in my life. Um, I literally, I got to the point where I, I honestly didn't feel like I could do anything with my hands at all. And it was so frustrating and so you know, um, I've always been a very independent person and there were, you yeah. know, a lot of things that I had to, you know, let go. It got, it got really bad, actually. Um, you know, it's probably not even that long ago now. I'm heading about a year and a half, two years now, so not even that long ago. Yep. Um, but it got, it got very bad. Um, you know, like I would, if I did groceries, sometimes I would leave things in my car because I just, physically did not feel like I could carry yeah, those yeah. inside the house. And so it's, things would stay in my car for ages that I didn't feel I could take out. And there was a lot of, you know, housework that needed to get done, you know, lucky, you know, with my partner. So he, he took care of a lot of things for me. Um, not that I wanted him to, but there, anyway, it was, it was, that was just kind of how things were yeah. um, at the time. And it just, it impacts everything. Um, and it was, yeah, I don't think I had ever, I think that's probably, you know, I, I would be lying if I said that that didn't also contribute to me, you know, really being drawn towards persistent pain. Yeah. Um, I mean, I started learning about it and all of those things before all of this, before, you know, before it got really bad. Um, but I just, um, yeah, anyway, long story short, I was still very convinced that it was a biomedical problem that needed a biomedical fix because I know about persistent pain. I've been researching it and that's just not me, you yeah. know, <laughs> and I've got a biomedical problem and it, it needs, to, you know, a fix and I didn't really want surgery to you know get carpal tunnel releases because I had a few patients that had those releases and they went they didn't always say that their symptoms were better so I'm like oh does that you know does it really help yeah. they, you know, splints tried all of those things um eventually I went and got a nerve conduction study done um and it came back fine there was nothing wrong at all um and it was, it just kind of clicked, but, you know, I think I was, I was very lucky um, in that um, that was my experience and that the fact that, you know, when it came back negative, 
it just clicked because I yeah. learned all this other stuff about pain and I was like, oh, okay, I know what this is. Um, you know, my, my partner was really eager and he was like, it's a, you know, it's don't, don't worry, Nat, we'll explore other options. It could be other conditions. I found out about these rare diseases that people can have. And I was like, no, actually, I don't think we need to look into any of those things. I think I think I know what this is, but I think it ultimately came down to stress. Um, You know, came back to too many stresses at the same time and, um, you know, my body just kind of went, you need to stop doing things. And I didn't want to stop doing things and I kept pushing myself. And so I would go, let's make your dominant hand hurt (laughs) because that's where you've had your previous overuse injury, you know. Um, and then it would, you know, and then I'll go, oh, now I can't do things. I'll use the other hand. And so I went, well, we'll make both of your hands hurt. <laughs> um, and so I was forced to rest, basically. Um, but then it, it was really hard to then get back into into doing things then because I kind of felt that, you know, I can't do anything with both of my hands. But um, anyway, we got there. We got there eventually. I didn't probably self-therapized I don't know if you're supposed to do that but you know it worked um every therapist does yeah look um like my hands are fine now um again I was very lucky I think in that it it would probably be you know looking back it would be what they call neuroplastic pain I think um in that you know you're looking at pain that's um has no specific physical origins yep um but yeah, it just, like, yeah, I, I'll be I got that, there. I'll be interested to, to, to hear your opinion because I, I have a similar thing, not necessarily with pain, um, but with depression, like your story, your the part of your story where you're like, it just clicked. I, I very much relate to in that I was experiencing these symptoms for so long and then it was just all of a sudden, I can't even remember at the time like what happened, but all of a sudden it was like, oh shit, this is depression. Like, how did I not see this? But one of the processes that I went through immediately after that was like, I work in this area. How the hell did I not see this? I had all this guilt and like, I must be a shit clinician. Like, if I can't even see this like in myself, was there any, not necessarily like that same process, but was was there any, I guess almost like, I guess, imposter syndrome type thing that you went through? once you sort of realize like oh wait this is something that even something that i've been looking at for a number of uh, years um i don't think it was quite that but um you know I, I think it what it made me realize it was a big slap in the face of the fact that i did not believe what i was preaching to my patients okay you know in yeah. that um this was before I was I worked in persistent pain. It was yeah. when I was a rural generalist, but you know I had those patients, and I was kind of trying to explain to them these these different things that can happen. But somewhere deep down, I think I was still like, okay, but you know it's not that bad. Yeah. Just you know, it's fine. Just and I think that was a big slap in the face when I kind of realized, actually, their pain is real. You know. I, you know, I think before then, uh, my perception of pain 
I don't know, maybe I, this is what I took from uni and not a bad reflection on uni at all. But, you it's know, okay. there's that I completely there's that understand. <laughs> there's that thing that you learn, I think, when they t- teach you about pain that um, pain is always true. It's a personal experience. Yeah, it's always true to the individual. And it's always true to the individual. And what I took from that was... It's in their head. If they say it's true, we pretend it's true. <laughs> they're the customer kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's the customer's fair. customer's always right. That's what I took from that's it. That's fair, yeah. No? Um, I'm sure you're not the <laughs> only one that took that message. I can that def- was, definitely see how you would, yeah. Yeah, like I didn't take from that that everyone, if they say they've got pain, they probably actually have pain. pain. Yeah. yeah, no, what I took from it was, okay, we pretend that we believe them yep. because... They say they've got it and we can't prove that they don't have it. Yeah, yeah. That's um, interesting. And so when I when it clicked, I went, oh, it is real. <laughs> it is real and it sucks and it's debilitating and it's yeah. frustrating. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe my ego is too high in that I didn't think I was a bad clinician for no, 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 it's... <laughs> It's interesting because I went through that as well sort of after I'd got over myself and gone, oh, you know, everyone, no one would see it coming. And when you're that close to it, you don't see it. And then I went through that, so what's pretty similar to what you just described then of I now feel having experienced it or having recognized that this is what the experience is. I can now understand better what the people I'm working with are going through and what they're actually experiencing even though, you know, it might be different presentations and different experiences, I just feel like I can now be a more effective uh, voice for these people because I understand more what they're going through. Yeah. Which, I don't know, it sounds stupid, but it sounds sort of cliche, but I feel like I've been there, so... I don't know, I, I can be a better clinician. I can be a, a better service yeah. to people yeah. within I agree. that realm. Yeah, 100% I agree. I think it made a huge difference on the, the type of clinician that I was able to be um, because, um, funny enough, I don't, yeah, anyway, it's not my only, you know, that hasn't actually, looking back, hasn't actually been my only pain experience, but I just, the other things just didn't impact me. Yeah. As much it was only once it came to the hands that I was like, oh, I can't do anything at all, you know. <laughs> um, that's when it, you know, became frustrating was with the other stuff. I don't know. There was medical, I came up with the, you know, doctors came up with medical diagnosis, which now I know aren't really probably that much of a thing. Um, but at the time, I was like, oh, yeah, Googled it. Google says it's real, so it's real. Um find anything on Google. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, sorry, I forgot where I was going with that, but it's, um, yes. <laughs> no, that's all right. Yeah, it's, um, I, I'm not, I don't want people to think that, like I'm saying, that you need to have experienced something to be a good condition. No, sorry, no, no. But I think what the message should be is that, like, you need to listen to the people you're working with more about their experience than whatever the referral says. Yep. Uh, I feel like that's a a much more important aspect of working with people is the people, funnily enough, than whatever some other health clinician has written on a piece of paper. Yeah, no, I 
100% agree. I think, yeah, I don't think we listen to people well enough, you know, especially, um, you know, within certain settings of OT, there's specific settings, I would argue it applies to on every setting I've worked in, except for pain. I don't actually think we listen to people, you know, probably mental health would be one where you would as well, because you've got that ability, I think. But, I think it's getting there. I still don't think it's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think pain was, that was the, that's been the first time that I've worked somewhere where I actually, um, you know, worked within a team, first of all, that listened to people yep. or where I felt that I had the capacity of listening to someone because there was a, and I think that's probably where, what it comes down to because there was a therapeutic benefit to listening to people in the fact that maybe there's a reason why they're telling me this random story again and again. And there's a reason they're telling me about that one time their grandchild did this. Maybe it's because they're actually lonely. You know, mm. there's reading in between the lines, whereas I think in a lot of other roles of OT, um, I didn't really get to do that. I never really listened to people I, you know i listened i listened to their home environment and yeah. they would start talking about their neighbor and i'll go okay but remember what about your shower yeah. about your shower how <laughs> many steps really... do you go down to visit the neighbor <laughs> yeah yeah let's you know the really riveting stuff like your home environment let's talk about that oh your goal is to do gardening oh you mean toileting yes yes you know <laughs> so it was very um it's, it's hard and it's hard within those areas because, you know, there's, there's a clinical need of why you're in that role mm. because you're serving a purpose of, you know, the, the flow of, I guess, the hospital and um, those things. Um, but I, I think that's been the one thing that I've really taken away from, you know, um, pain is just listening to people no matter what it is about. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you've, you've got patients, sometimes people like to talk and they probably like to chat a little bit too much, but um, I don't know. I just, I give them more of a chance to talk. But sometimes even that, not what they're saying, but the fact that they're saying that kind of stuff, like sometimes even that gives you information or insight into yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I realized that previously. I was like, oh, yeah. they're getting distracted. Yeah. Um, whereas now I, I look at those things very differently. But certainly, you know, if they tell me they've got pain, if they tell me they've got whatever symptom they're experiencing, I'm I feel like I'm probably I'm their number one advocate now. <laughs> you know, I go to the doctors and I'm like, this, you know, their cast is on too tight, and they're like, we've we fixed it up too many times already. I'm like, I don't care. They say it's too tight. You know, um, we we need to do something about this. Um, yep. Because at the end of the day, if they say it's too tight, it's too tight. It's too tight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel uh -huh. like, like I was saying before, like how pain seems to be practicing in a way I wish mental health was. I think OTs and mental health are getting there, but just the overall perspective of mental health is still very much similar to where pain started. In that, mental health conditions are looked at as this kind of modular thing that then just kind of attacks a person and our job is to get rid of it whereas instead of looking at like the person as a whole and their experience um which is i, th I think ot's are slowly moving in that way especially with more i guess the popularization of more sort of narrative exploration tools like car and that kind of stuff yeah. um i do feel like ot is is definitely making progress forward with regards to that in mental health yeah 
with regards to the tools, are they similar tools for OTs would use in, in pain? Like, do you use those sort of narrative exploration tools and similar sort of, I guess, OT-type models, like you said, talked about PEO, or is it just like a very specific pain uh, toolkit? It's probably a bit of a combination of things. There's definitely a lot of it is probably what you'd call a morbid pain toolkit. That's actually what we call it. Oh, okay. That was a good guess. Um, <laughs> but um, there's other stuff. You know, I've done car wars with people before and things like that, which I was so excited. I was like, this, I can do a car I can with use it. Um, it, was, it was great. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a combination. I think, again, you know, at the end of the day, it comes back to that um, – what's what's the main what are the main you know unhelpful things or the main um things contributing to this person's experience at the moment if that's going to be actually we're just going to work on your communication skills with your partner so that you can reduce improve that relationship and then we'll figure out the other stuff then that's just where we start um so that's um yeah that's been it's been a really nice thing being able to work like that I've really appreciated that but um what i was going to say i think you know um one thing with with my painting experience um that i was really that i really you know grew so much from probably more in the in the aftermath of it all but um learning about mindfulness and meditation um you know looking at um i watched a few different things of you know buddhist monks and their little spiels about things and I you know I guess you know you, you said that in mental health sometimes you guys would look at you know mental health as this thing and mm-hmm. it's our job to remove it and um, I think you know really uh, I don't know, it sounds cliche and I'm definitely not saying everyone's pain experience works like that you know obviously I've had a very different experience given that biologically there was actually nothing wrong with you know with my anatomy or nothing that I'm aware of anyway yep. um and it's I believe and again I've come to these conclusions myself um that it was just you know that nociplastic pain um but looking at living with pain as my old friend it sounds very cliche but you know I think um Really, that's my relationship to, to my pain experience. Now, yep. I, I, you know, I'm very, you know, lucky in that um, in the grand scheme of things, I didn't have pain for as many years as other people had. And because I had that background and understanding and knowledge, I was, once it clicked, I was able to do the right things, which um, if I didn't have that knowledge, it probably, I would probably be still going through the same thing and not getting the care that I need because there's a lot of, unhelpful things out there um but because i think you know early i don't know if you want to call it early intervention but because i was able to do those things sooner i guess thinking about you know things in terms of neuroplasticity um i think i just there was um a better prognosis from that aspect for me so i um you know basically don't really um have pain at all anymore um but there are moments when it will when i'll get pain in my hand when your old friend comes back to visit when my old friends comes back yeah <laughs> and you know and that's literally that's how i look at it now because yeah. i've come to realize i am not good and good at realizing when i'm stressed 
and I'm not good at realizing when I've taken on too much. Consciously, but apparently and your I'm body is like, very good yeah, at it. My body is aware, but I'm not. I just, you know, I'm, I'm so good at pushing those things away and, um, you know, have you know just handling the life things and you know just moving on with life fine and never really acknowledging feelings and emotions and those things and um I my my body just tells me and so you know I'll get pain and then I'll kind of look at my hand usually for a few seconds and go oh why is that hurting now and then I'll realize I'm like actually (laughs) I'm really stressed right now and I didn't realize that I was as stressed as I was. And usually it doesn't take long of me acknowledging this and then thinking of it. And it's like, oh, do I really need to be stressed about this? Probably not. You know, maybe can I look at it differently? It doesn't take long and then the pain goes away. And then it comes back next time. <laughs> next time when I've overdone things. Um, it's been interesting. But I think, you know, it's cliche looking at it as an old friend, but that's... No, that I is, think, yeah. that, again, that's something that very much relates with mental health practice. Think- that's it's just been exactly how it's how it's been it's just you know i think with a lot of with a lot of health um issues for lack of a better term uh, it people have found it really helpful to and this is something i talk about with students i don't know if i talked about with you guys but nowadays is being able to externalize things helps people process them so being able to you know call your your pain essentially another person like being able to externalize it being able to refer it to or refer to it as something other than part of you yeah helps some people not everyone but for quite a lot of people in my experience it helps people process it same thing happens with with mental health that's why you know there's nicknames like the black dog for depression and stuff like that is because it allows people to refer to the experience they're having um but not i guess not cement it as part of their identity and that yeah. like we were talking about earlier with that sort of positive mindset that helps with that mm-hmm. if you're not identical like i'm not a depressed person i'm a person who has depression kind of thing you're able to separate it um that helps the mindset very like massively and like like we it's common knowledge hopefully by now that you know the mind is a very powerful muscle and if it's pointing in one direction it's hard to change it Mm. it's interesting if that direction is positive even better (laughs) yeah um because i think a lot of times in the pain setting pain clinicians don't actually like people referring to things as different things um because sometimes it can i guess it can um you know people de-associate with those parts of their body and sometimes that can cause further pain problems and that they no longer actually see that hand as belonging to them or that foot it's just something that's just dangling in your body and it's not part of you um so we don't actually recommend people interesting separated um from themselves when i which is i think why for me and i don't know probably someone else would argue against that but i think that's why for me you know looking at it as my old friend i know that it's part of my body Mm. you know i think that's it's just important that yeah to make that differentiation rather than it doesn't sound like you're separating the body part though more just the experience of the pain yeah, I'm not, but someone else could yeah, look at oh, it yeah, yeah. and go, 
oh, it's that friend again that's coming to stupid wrist. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yep. Again, stupid wrist. Oh, it's that stupid yeah. thing. And it's it's actually quite unhelpful looking at things like that. Interesting. Um, yeah, from it's to, it's from like a neuroplasticity and like nociception um, perspective. Um, and I guess yeah, yeah. that's cool. Thought, well, I've, the ins and outs of it in mental uh, health. It's that's not usually a concern i guess I, people if people uh, are disassociating they've already disassociated by the time i see them yeah yeah i think it's uh I'm trying to think of you know, mindful i'm not going to say the wrong thing but um when when people have casts on you know like you break your arm mm. um and i don't know that it's the right word but i think it's the neural pathways they actually find that there's a weakening in the strength of neural pathways mm-hmm. if you've got a cast on for multiple weeks and weeks on end and the fact that you know your proprioception in that wrist or in that arm or on that foot is going to be a lot worse because you haven't used it mm. for a while and so you know basically the body stops communicating as effectively with that part yep. of your, your body and so i think uh, you know a big part of disassociating that part and going oh it's that thing i don't want that thing that can contribute weakening those neural pathways. Yeah, that, well, that's that's the that's yeah. the thought process. Anyway, no, that makes sense. Um, of um, those, yeah, I don't know that that's the that's really simplified, and that's probably not really the best way of putting it. But anyway, for the purposes of this, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it makes sense. Um, um, the, the the brain controls everything, like pain. Uh, something a lot of people don't understand you can feel free to correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is i've heard multiple people say like you know you might feel pain like in your wrist but that's not actually where it is you're feeling it in your brain essentially yeah yeah we you know i even now um not working in pain i often talk to people as you know really pain is is a protective mechanism Mm. Um, and it's your body's, you know, it's your brain or you usually say your body because people don't like hearing brain because then they think I'm telling them it's all in the head. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's, a very, it's a very touchy topic actually talking about pain to people because there's so many preconceived ideas, um, you know, but I, I would often say things like, you know, it's your, your body's um, trying to make sense of the situation and deciding if if this is threatening or not. Um, and if there's credible evidence that it may be threatening, usually pain is produced. Um, and, you know, we often, very often use the example that, you know, for example, right now, you know, I'm sitting here looking at you. Um, this is probably more of an example for you because you're the person that usually interviews people. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I would say things like, you know, I'm, I'm always in this clinic room. I feel pretty safe here. I've met you before and you seem like a pretty, pretty nice guy. You know, I'm not, I don't feel threatened, but otherwise, you know, I've got a door behind me if I really needed to escape. I feel pretty safe. You know, my body's probably more in a, um, you know, rest and digest state rather than, you know, fight or flight. Yep. Um, like in theory, I would hope that that's how you're feeling as well. But you know, and, and then you know, I say, you know, I'm probably making very generalized assumptions here because I don't know exactly what it's like for you. But potentially, you might be sitting here right now, going, "What's who the hell is this girl? 
why is she talking to me about pain? You know, how does she know? She has no idea what it's like. This chair is really uncomfortable. The drive here was really annoying. I had to park on the other side of the road. There's really bad parking here. Sounds like you're describing my day. <laughs> you know, how much longer am I going to have to sit here for? Is she going to tell me it's all in my head? You know, those things. And usually at that stage, people kind of start nodding and you're like, yeah. So even just with something as simple as you sitting in this appointment yeah. you know, with me, your, I guess, fight or flight system yeah. is activated a lot more than than mine is. And so that that's an indication that, you know, things are probably just on overdrive a little bit. Um, that's kind of how, how we... Yeah, that's a really good example. I like that. Um, yeah, again, actually, that was not a quote. I came up with... <laughs> oh, I might write that down. I'll quote you. Uh, that was... Um, that was. But, you know, you come up with a lot of different ways of explaining things, and sometimes you explain something and you think... Um, yeah, I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, explain pain. It's like a... I heard, uh, but I don't know much about it. They're, they're, um, it's by the... Um, you know, without advertising it too much, <laughs> the um, Neuro Institutional or NOI group, I don't know what it stands for, I keep forgetting, Neuro something group. Um, basically, they provide professional development opportunities to teach people about pain and how to explain pain. Um, but, you know, you find, you know, you learn all the stuff and then you try and explain it to someone and sometimes it works really well and you go, yeah, I'm going to use that exact example again. And then sometimes... It just almost seems to have made things worse. And like, yep. Okay, we'll, we'll try that one again. Um, it's a bit of a, a juggling act, I think, sometimes, and, you know, providing the right information at the right time when they're ready to receive it in the right, tailored in the right way that is going to work for that person. You know, if, they, if it's an older gentleman who likes car motors, talking about motors or it's, you know, an electrician talking about, you know, those, you know using kind of some of those examples. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that that uh, the point of them being in the right place to receive it is something that is fairly OT universal. And I don't think it's something OTs think about very often. Or well, not even just OTs, just health professionals in general don't think about think, where the person is. Yeah at that point in time on terms of the like obviously there's some situations like probably palliative care where sometimes it's a little harder to you know find the right moment uh but for most clinicians there are some times where you're like oh this might not be the right time to explore this or venture down this road we might wait until the next session and see how that's going kind of thing so I definitely, again, before working in pain, never something I considered. It's like my goal for today's session is ABC. Yep. That's what we're going through. If you have anything added, that's what we'll add, we'll work through as well. But my, these are my goals. This is what I want to get out of, you know, very, very it's not very client centered really when you think about it. Um, no, but I think it's a very familiar new grad experience. I think most new grads will like resonate with that. And then yeah. going through that growth, uh, I mean, that's you only preps you so much before you get out. And then honestly, that's why there's like a two-year, usually in Australia anyway, we classify that the first two years as new grad, quote unquote, 
and then yeah. that's what we usually see. I, I, my experience, you'll see after two years, a person will be a different person, and then after seven years, that person will be a different person. They're they're the two big, mm. I guess, game changing milestones that I would generally see in in new clinicians. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll have to wait for my seven year transformation then. <laughs> I got ages yet, ages to go. Wonder how I'll, what I'll be saying by then. What oh, I'll you'll be- have. Fix the world or save the world by then. Yeah, yeah. Probably not. And I'll probably be on the other side of it and going, oh, I can, I can never fix the world. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully I'll That's growth. That's growth. As enthusiastic. One yeah. more thing I want to bring up because I've found it the other day. Your shop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Oh, uh, look, it's very small i'm just kind of doing it for fun so explain what is it what's it for so it's what it the the summary of it yeah is that it's aesthetically pleasing clinic posters for clinicians um and they definitely i can vouch i'm looking at them right now they are very aesthetically pleasing oh thank you um thanks i try i've probably you know have been a little bit have not been creating that many new things as i've wanted to i've got actually i'm lying i've got a whole bunch of things saved on my computer i haven't uploaded them yet i need to do that um but really the i think again you know coming back to trying to save the world that's what i was getting at (laughs) i um you know realize there's a lot of there's not a lot of good posters out there. Um, most you know, of them are pretty but, crap. <laughs> yeah, most of them are really bad. And, you know, sometimes and I'm not saying my posters are amazing or anything like that at all, um, but most of them are really bad. You know, you can't even, I guess, if you had a private clinic and you wanted your clinic to look nice, hmm. um, it's pretty hard to do that because I think, you know, usually the public world, we don't really care too much. We have all, all of the ugly posters on the wall. Public health, the, the aim is to get a message across and that's where it stops. Yeah, we Whereas don't care. these I would akin more to a piece of art that also some some of them, others are just art, but some of them yeah, also them. have a message, but it's probably more like it's art first and then it has a message. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I've tried to do anyway. Really, the aim is that over time, and I'll probably say, you know, it'll take me a while to actually get to do that. I'd like to have a lot more pain posters and pain-related things up there. Um, maybe some resources for clinicians and, you know, like just a, I don't know, initial assessment and things like that that people can just, they're all, you know, um, electronic documents. So you just, you know, go on there and you, it's an instant download. Yep. Um, downloadable. Thing and there's... Like some things that are also not in English by the look of it. Stages, yeah. Spanish stages, is that stages of change in Spanish? Yeah, stages of change awesome. in Spanish. And um, I think I did a, few, a mindfulness one in German. I'm just exploring. Again, nothing, none of it. It's just it's just a creative outlet. Um, you know, again, realizing that there is no, there's a lot of gaps, you know, and things. And sometimes, you know, I'll message people that buy from me and I'm just kind of like, what do you want to see, you know? um but there is actually i i don't know maybe i'm not looking at the right places but i could not actually find any clinic room resources that are not in english you know in 
in in you know Spanish and you know Portuguese. I looked at German. I guess you know because those are you know, which is which seems odd because I know like talking to some friends that work in the states like. For some of them, especially like clinicians in California and stuff, like Spanish speaking people are a huge it's, percentage of their yeah, population. Yeah, look, there, there are things out there. Like, I'm not, it's not, not completely right, but there's nothing in this area, yeah, I guess. Yeah. In the, you know, there was, you know, there's a lot of kids, children resources that are translated in Spanish. Because um, I was thinking about, um, you know, kids, pediatric stuff for a while, but. I think that looks like, you know, people, a lot of people have done that. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's just not the same quantity of things available. It's probably all it is. I'm just, um, I like you know, it. adding the things that I've created out there into the world. And if it helps one person, that's great. You know, the other one has been, um, which, I, you know, I, I still have very weird feelings about how I feel about it, but I've, I've you know, had... Um, a few um, acknowledgement of country posters that I've put up Um, and I I feel really funny about it because I don't feel like I should be you know putting those things out there because I'm not Aboriginal myself Um, and I've chatted to my partner about it he's he's Aboriginal and he was like no no it's fine I'm like okay well I guess if you say it's fine then maybe it's fine but you know, um, so the, the way I kind of worked around that for myself is that I've just, you know, sent some of the proceedings have gone to charity and, you know, kind of um, looking at some of those Aboriginal, um, you know, like, um, I'm trying to think of the word. I see there's a thing at the top that says it's prob- some, some of the problems are donated to the Indigenous Literacy Fund Foundation. Yeah, 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 there you go. Charities. That was the right word. Oh. Looking for <laughs> charities that that were sending um things yeah so we did the indigenous literacy foundation um for a few months and now we're um it's really i think i'm trying to remember i think we're doing um sleeping bags for the homeless that's the current oh yeah yeah i think i've if it's the one i'm thinking of i think i've seen that mm, yeah so that's the like one a that... sleeping backpack sleeping yeah bag yeah, one. yeah, like, yeah it's an australian invention yeah yeah but, um I think they're trying to roll it out in the States as well, but it's, yeah, there was actually an ad on TV for it the other day. Oh, there you I was go. like, that thing yeah. is amazing. And it like folds yeah. up into a backpack and it folds down into a safe, comfortable, sleeping, um, like a kind of like a little swag, I guess, for, yeah. for yeah. people who are living on the streets. Yeah, it was yeah. really cool. Yeah, so that's the, the one that we're currently, um, you know, looking at donating money to um but you know it's a again it's nothing huge or anything like that so you know i'm probably i'm not very good at selling myself am i but um it's um you know i'm just every few months when there's a, a significant enough amount which is again still not that significant i, I donate the money over well um, i think i'm gonna have to order some things for my office because i've just moved office and there's not much on the wall and i can oh, definitely see I feel like one of those th- anyway I definitely see some of these things on my office wall maybe you can tell me what things would be relevant and then i can think of it from you know from that perspective um, we can we can brainstorm that'll be all right yeah, we can do that you can put some of your quotes in on oh, no. there i could <laughs> that'd be great and put at the yeah, quote yourself yeah natalie Cullen, uh, 2022 yeah, don't know how I feel about that. But <laughs> don't know if anyone would want that. Maybe if I was, you know, famous. Um, 
<laughs> will we? That's the first step. First step to being famous. Creating posters with my own quotes. That's right. That's how it works. Work. I'm sure it's worked for other people. It could work oh, for you. I guess, you know, people will be sitting in someone's clinic room going, who's Natalie? Yeah. This is <laughs> no. Natalie person that I keep seeing in every clinic. Yep. See? Yep. That's how it works. Um, so where okay. where can people go to find all your stuff on your shop your instagram where's the best where can we send people uh probably my instagram i think so it's um the oc dot gram so it's the oc gram and then the shop is called the oc shop <laughs> so if you go onto the oc gram you, you find the link in the bio there yeah the link's in the in the little bio at the top and i'll, I'll throw the links in the yeah. show notes for um, all of this stuff so if you're looking for posters Definitely go and grab some. Go and have a look. They're really cool. I'm definitely going to order some. Otherwise, feel free to send me a message and let me know if there's anything in particular that people would like. I'm very open to ideas. So, yeah. And then um, go and check out the amazingly flowing aesthetic of her whole Instagram page, which I'm very jealous of because it just... Uh, I feel like that's really setting the bar very high oh, now. It is. I, but I, don't I, think think you, I think you've set the bar very high because I've never seen an Instagram page where if you look at it as a whole, all the posts look like they're just part of one massive picture. I think yeah. that's, I think that's awesome. I'm glad. Thank you. I didn't come up with it myself. I just, I don't I think I saw something similar somewhere. It wasn't, it wasn't Still the whole Instagram. It. it was like, you know, the flowing pictures. So I was like, let's just make it a. It's funky. I love it. I'm yeah. a, I'm a very visual person. And I like that sort of minimalistic yeah. aesthetic. So I'm very drawn to things like that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'll make sure I keep working on, on the aesthetics <laughs> that when people look at it, actually looks. <laughs> so it catches their eye and then they get those little 20-second snippets of learning and yes. you've hooked them in then. Yeah, 20 seconds of learning. And if that makes any difference to their clinic clinical life, um, I think that's really, that's all, all I kind of hope for. Perfect. Thanks so much for coming and having a chat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been good coming along. Absolute pleasure. Good to catch up. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly... If you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.